You're listening to the Long's Chapel Weekly Message Podcast, available Sundays at 5 o'clock p.m. If you would like to connect to Long's Chapel or keep up with all events happening at Long's Chapel Church, connect with us via Instagram, Facebook, or on our church website, longschapel.com. Here at Long's Chapel, we believe in worshiping and serving God by reaching people and growing together as passionate followers of Jesus Christ, because all people matter to God. This week's message comes from our lead pastor, Reverend Chris Westmoreland. I hope you're well today. Are you well today? Because you look pretty good, actually. Look pretty good. And uh, it's dry outside, kind of. That's good. Like some of you had a little like snow on the, snow on the mountaintops. Um, but as we uh, have an opportunity to reflect a little bit um, in our sermon series, second week of our sermon series, uh, we've been talking a bit about how um, God is like in the scriptures, we see over and over again how God, especially in and through Jesus, is redefining the, our understanding of what it means to be desperate. We think about being desperate, we think about all these kind of negative connotations that pop up, um, but God, I think, is like speaking a new word about what it means to actually be desperate in the sense that we're longing uh, for the power and the gift of the Holy Spirit. And so um, as we kind of think and pray about that um, a little bit this morning, I, I brought some bread. Somebody asked if it's communion Sunday. I'm like, no, that's the first Sunday of the month. So it's not communion Sunday, but I brought some bread. And um, I wanted to ask you a really like important question that for some of you that may have like some OCD tendencies, I don't know, this may mess with you a little bit, but, but what do you think about crumbs? What do you think about crumbs? I don't know. Like, what do you, like, just like, what does that do for you? Like, how many folks are, like, triggered by that? <laughs> what do you, what do you, what do you think about? How many, like, how many people, let's just take a poll in a survey. How many people this week went to a restaurant and, and in one way, shape, or form asked for, for water and some crumbs? I'm thinking that probably is not something that you didn't, even if you asked for it, I don't know that the restaurant would know how to give that to you or charge, charge you with that, right? Um, I'm thinking about what crumbs mean for us and what part of crumbs mean for us is are crumbs easier or hard to clean up? Yeah, they're hard, right? Because like if I just throw this loaf of bread around, it's pretty easy to, to clean up because you just pick it up and you just kind of go with it. But, but that's kind of not what we're doing here, right? What we're doing here is kind of spreading some things out. So let me give you guys some crumbs and, and you guys some crumbs. Really, let's get that, that OCD kicking in. I know this is wasteful. Forgive me for that. Um, I mean, like, you can go to the store and buy breadcrumbs. You might buy, like, breadcrumbs to put in, like, a chicken casserole or something like that. Okay, in that way, maybe crumbs are good. But that's not what we tend to think about when we think about crumbs. Um, How many have ever said this phrase? This might be so 80s of me to say this. I don't know. Uh, Man, I just feel crummy today. Does that ever mean a good thing? Probably not, right? Probably not. Um, and I think about all the different images in the scriptures. Let's just focus on the New Testament for a minute. All the different images and scriptures where uh, Jesus is talking about bread and like he's like the bread of life. And we have obviously at the, the Last Supper, you know, where Jesus is kind of gathering. See, I've got crumbs all over the, the pulpit now. Um, where, you know, Jesus is gathering together uh, with the disciples at the Last Supper and kind of sharing in uh, that meal, which primarily is, is uh, bread and wine after the, after the Passover meal. And um, 
there's images in the Old Testament of God providing manna in addition to quail. There's just like the story of the loaves and the fishes where, you know, Jesus has an opportunity through a little boy's lunchbox to, you know, to feed 5,000 um, men plus the, the women and children that were there. I mean, just incredible images and imagery around bread. But, but never right does Jesus say, well, like I come to be the crumb of life. Like, that's not a phrase we've heard before. And, and maybe that's intentional, right? Because maybe when we think about grace, maybe when we think about grace, maybe we think about grace as a whole. Maybe we think about it something whole, something that's like, I don't know, like too big to digest in one setting. Like God's love is, is big, it's comprehensive, it's, it's, you know, significantly proportioned and sized. And I don't know that we think a whole lot about, I don't know that we think about a whole lot about grace like that. Let me invite us to... Uh, to read some scripture together. This is uh, the Gospel of Matthew. This is uh, chapter 15, beginning in verse 21. Uh, Jesus left that place and went away to the district of Tyre and, and Sidon. Uh, and just then, a Canaanite woman from that region came out and started shouting, Have mercy on me, Lord, son of David, for my daughter is tormented by a demon. But he didn't answer her at all. And his disciples came and, and they urged him saying, hey, send her away for like she keeps shouting after us. And he answered, well, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. But, um, well, she came and she knelt before him and she said, Lord, Lord, help me. And he answered, like, it is not fair to take the children's food and to throw it to the dogs. And she said, yes, Lord, yet even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from the master's table. And then Jesus answered her, woman, great is your faith. Let it be done for you as you wish. And her daughter was healed instantly. The two things that happen immediately after that is that Jesus continues to cure many people in that area and in that region. And then we have Matthew's version of the feeding of the 5,000. Jesus feeds 4,000. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Wow. Um, man. I don't know, friends, as we're kind of thinking about this, I'm thinking about this incredible notion of this story, which, by the way, if, if like part of your spine didn't brussel up on part of this story, I'd be a little worried. And so I'd love for us just to walk through uh, this particular passage and kind of honor and acknowledge a little bit about what's happening as we kind of walk through this. But maybe the first thing we need to know about this particular story is kind of how it begins, right? How it begins, and it begins kind of in this way. And then, like, Jesus left that place, and he went away to the district of, of Tyre and Sidon. And, and so if we did that, I think we actually have a map, SALT team. I think there's actually a map up there that um, shows us just a little bit, right? Shows us a little bit of, of Tyre and, and Sidon and, and um, being able to note that, like, I don't know, like if you look below, these are some familiar names to you, right? Nazareth and, and Tiberias and, and Capernaum and, and Cana and, and Bethsaida. And like, these are familiar names as you look kind of in the south of that particular map. These are familiar names. These are names that you hear about regularly in the scriptures. These are places where Jesus uh, frequents 
um, pretty regularly. You have a little bit up to the, to the northeast. You have uh, Caesarea Philippi. We've, we've heard uh, a good bit about that. But then on the left part, right on the coast, uh, uh, Tyre and, and Sidon, these are, these are not places you would hear about Jesus frequenting a whole lot because he actually didn't frequent them. He didn't frequent them a whole lot. These particular regions, right, were, were filled up with um, folks that Jesus didn't have, like, personally, directly, at least by, by what we have record of, uh, a ton of interaction with. And so, um, as we kind of think about that, it begins to put like this whole story into context a little bit. As Jesus is kind of moving away from the places where he's normally doing ministry, Matthew wants us to know that he's kind of moving away from that into some territory that feels like a bit for the disciples, it feels a bit unfamiliar. Have you ever been in unfamiliar territory? How does it make you feel? Can you think about that? How does it make you feel to be in unfamiliar territory? What's taken away from you when you're in unfamiliar territory? Like your experience is taken away because you don't have any experience in unfamiliar territory. It's all kind of new. You're not really like there's some there's some there's some disease. Um, like I know this is a, a metaphor, but as you think about like being in a waiting room, awaiting test results of some kind, and it, that feels like unfamiliar territory for whatever that thing is, that thing, whatever that may be, is territory that you haven't been in in exactly that way in exactly this place in your life before. And, and those are moments that can be scary. Those are moments that can be challenging. Well, think about that in a very physical way with what Jesus and the disciples are encountering in, in this particular moment. And so here, here's what we know, right, is that the woman that Jesus is going to encounter in this story, um, she's an outsider, okay? So the disciples and Jesus are beginning to be in unfamiliar territory, and she is an outsider to them. And if we could actually kind of look at what's happening here, I didn't draw this on the map, but you're going to see the disciples and Jesus come from one direction, she's going to come from another, and they're going to kind of meet some, somewhere in the middle, not exactly in the middle, but somewhere in the middle. I want you to think about the outsiderness of this particular story, because this is really important. Um, number one, she's a woman. Number two, she's um, a Phoenician. This is um, kind of the, and we'll call this very loosely, the, the nation of, of Phoenicians. Okay, and we'll talk about that in just a minute. Also, she's, she's a Canaanite, which actually infers some kind of religious um, denotion that's a, a bit different from Judaism. Um, today, we might actually call a Canaanite a Palestinian. Well, that got you quiet. I may step on some toes today, but that's okay. Like, that's, that's the Holy Spirit kind of pushing on us a little bit, right? Um, so this is a Palestinian, like today we would call this a Palestinian woman who's in a territory that, um, you know, is a bit unfamiliar to, to Jesus and the disciples who are primarily Jewish men. And, and so, like, as we kind of find... In this particular place, we know that the region where she lived is an, it makes her an outsider. The religious preference that she has makes her an outsider. And all of that kind of points to the fact that not only are, like, is, are the disciples in unfamiliar territory as they walk with Jesus in these moments, but she's in unfamiliar territory approaching, approaching Jesus in the way that she has. Uh, this is what one particular um, commentary says about this. It says, uh, this Gentile woman greeted Jesus as Lord. Thou son of David. Like, like, this seems a bit surprising. Like, a guy named Williams comments. Like, living among a mixed populations of Jews and Gentiles, she'd heard this title applied to Jesus, and she knew something of the hopes of the Hebrew nation. That, that they were, like, expecting a Messiah, a son of a great King David, who should preach to the poor, heal the sick, as she'd heard that Jesus, clearly as she'd heard that Jesus had done. And so, like, she clearly had the faith that, that Christ could 
like if Jesus willed it, that he could cast a demon out of her daughter. And let's acknowledge that what's bringing her to this place is the desperation that she feels as a mom and as a parent with a child who has a condition that is beyond her control. And if you've ever been in that space, you know something about what that feels like. She is desperate. Okay? And continue here. The master, like, met her request with, well, with silence at first. Silence at first. Anybody ever prayed to God and felt like God was silent in response? She knows something about that. Like Jesus didn't respond immediately. We don't know why. We just, like he didn't. So in that moment, she felt unheard. She could have gone away. She doesn't choose to go away. She actually chooses to engage and dig in. So much so that the disciples say to Jesus, hey man, you got to do something with her. She's a problem. Like she's a problem. Like the, the disciples are irked. Like they're begging Jesus to send her away. And I want you to think about sending her away. I want you to think about all of the geographical. And I want you to think about all the racial and all the the ethnic and all the, um, like the religious stuff that's at play here. And when they were, they the disciples, right, are telling Jesus to send her away. What are they really saying to Jesus? Hey, Jesus, put her in her place. Like, send her back where she came from. You can fill in the blanks. There's a whole lot of other words they would have said there. Even if they hadn't said them, they were feeling them inside their heart. And so, well, like his answer, his answer was, well, like, you know, I'm here to minister to the lost sheep of Israel. I'm, I'm here to minister to Jews and not Gentiles. And remember, this is the gospel of Matthew that's telling this particular story. And Matthew's whole point, unlike Luke, who tells the Jesus story from a different perspective, from a Gentile perspective, from a non-Jewish perspective, this is Matthew's gospel. And so he's talking very specifically about how Jesus has come to be like to be the long-awaited Messiah that the Hebrew scriptures have prophesied and talked about all of this time. Like that's, that's Matthew's whole entire purpose for writing this gospel. Not that Matthew is opposed to Jesus being the Savior for all, but that's not his emphasis. His emphasis is to convince Jewish people that Jesus is the long-awaited Messiah that they have waited for. He may not look like it in every way that they thought he, he would, but he is that and that they need to trust and believe him because that's where abundant and eternal life is found. That's Matthew's perspective. And so Jesus in Matthew's gospel is saying, hey man, like I, I'm here to minister to Jews, not, not non-Jews. And, and so like this persistent woman, she presses on, she draws near, she worships him. She falls on her face before him. I want you to think about the desperation in her spirit that has her Right? And all of the outsiding ways that, that she represents, like to bring herself to lay herself down at the feet of Jesus, saying, Lord, help me. Like, can you think about that prayer coming from the deepest part of her heart, the most heartfelt part of her heart, the most difficult place? And that last verb, literally, that last verb when she's saying, help me, literally means this, if you translated it, to run at the cry of one who calls for aid, to run at the cry of one who calls for aid. Now, it's really possible that what ruffled your feathers a little bit in the reading of this story is an interaction that next begins to happen between her and Jesus. It's this notion of um, Jesus calling her a dog. Did that feel a little weird to you? Did that feel a little weird to you? Yeah. I I mean, it's it's a bit odd, right? So I don't... um, like, I don't use a lot of artificial intelligence to, uh, to, write, to write sermons, but when I do, I try to tell you that that's what I'm doing. So the next part of the sermon, I'm telling you that's what I did. It's actually going to be up on the screen. So I asked ChatGPT, man. I said, uh, which is, um, 
you know, uh, kind of an app that does some neat research for you. And I just said, hey, man, in, in Matthew 15, Jesus used a, a very particular term here in the original language, in the Greek language, which is what the New Testament is originally written in. Jesus used a very particular term to refer to this woman as a dog. Like, and what is that? And why would he do that? And uh, here's, what, uh, here's what chat said. Uh, and by the way, I researched it in other places, and this is actually right. So in Matthew 15, 26, when Jesus refers to dogs in his conversation with a Canaanite woman, he uses this Greek word, which I'm not going to try to pronounce because I'll, I'll butcher it. But that actually translates to like small dog or pet dog. So this term is distinct from like kuan, which means like wild cur, or is used elsewhere in the New Testament to refer to like unspiritual people or unclean animals. Like the use of the puppy word, right? The use of the small dog, pet dog word. It suggests a less harsh connotation, possibly akin to like household pits, rather than this derogatory term that many Jews of the day would have used for non-Jews, which was common, right? To denote the un unspirituality or the ceremonial uncleanness of those who weren't following uh, in the Hebrew covenant. And so Jesus's dialogue with this woman, particularly his use of this particular word, was part of a broader lesson on faith and the expansion of his ministry beyond the Jewish people rather than a direct insult. Isn't that interesting? Do you find that to be interesting? I mean, we in our language have some, I don't know, like some pretty inappropriate, you know, like dog words that we throw at, at each other from time to time, if you know what I mean. I mean, we're not total, that's not totally foreign for us. But for disciples to call her names when they're asking Jesus to get rid of her and to say things like, would you like put her in her place? And to think about these just incredibly derogatory terms that they would have been throwing at him, right? And it's almost like, it's almost like, I don't know this for sure, but this is my, my kind of spiritual imagination running wild a little bit. It's almost like when Jesus doesn't immediately respond to her, it's almost like he's doing that not for her, but he's doing that for them. He's not, it, it doesn't feel like he's doing that to test her persistence. He actually, I think, even at that point, probably knows that she has some desperation. It's almost like he's testing the disciples and he's testing like their willingness or their ability to be able to expand their understanding of God's grace, to believe that God would somehow want to be able to provide access for this woman who all they want to do is curse. Now, like, I'm not going to ask you out loud, does that identify? That, that absolutely should identify with each and every one of us because there are folks in each and every one of our hearts, there are folks that in one way or another feel unclean, in one way or another feel like somehow like other than whatever that may look like. For her, she's got very specific reasons why the disciples might have felt that way. But, but for Jesus, it seems to be something different. And it's almost like his interaction with her is now as much for the disciples as it is for her. It's as much not just the opportunity to meet her in her need, but it's also to check the bias and the, the frustration and the difficulty of, of the disciples and kind of what they're bringing in a hardened part of their heart. Believing that, man, that God would even have a purpose and a plan for such a person that could actually be like uh, a woman who was clearly born on the wrong side of the country or tracks and clearly like, you know, doesn't have the, the social status of, of, of men and, and of Jews and, and just on and on and on, right? You can kind of like feel the rest of that. But it's almost like what Jesus is doing here is it, it, like he's saying to the disciples, hey, by the way, 
Like, she's not your enemy. She's your sister. She's your sister. And there's this really interesting distinction. I feel like it's really important. I don't want to spend a ton of time on it, but I do want to call it out. This is really important affirmation about what gospel inclusion actually looks like in this moment. And I just want to name it because it feels really important. And in order to do that, I want to invite you. This is really hard for us to do. But I want to invite you to kind of set aside the fact that we're Americans and we have very specific ideas of what we think it means to like to be inclusive or to be equal. And, and some of that's wrapped up in the language of our constitution and the founding of our country. And there's beautiful stuff there. But for a minute, I want to invite you to set aside that you're part of we the people. For a minute, I want you to set your inalienable rights aside for a second. Because if you just understand this from like, a, you know, a modern day American perspective, we might not actually get what, what Jesus is actually really inferring here. Because like for Jesus, inclusion doesn't mean, oh yeah, like all of you are equal. Like, when I look at you, I just see you all the same. That, that's actually not what Jesus seems to be doing here. It's actually not what Jesus seems to be doing in a lot of his ministry. Does Jesus clearly believe that all people are created in the image of God? And that, like, God is longing to, this is super important, that God is longing to provide access to God's kingdom and God's grace for everyone? Absolutely. But I want to invite you to think about how that's different from that notion of equal where everybody is like the same. Nobody in this story could think that this woman is the same as these disciples. And Jesus certainly doesn't think that. He's acknowledging they come from completely different worldviews, completely different parts of the world, completely different ideas of, of what life and faith and even to some degree what God is actually about. But, but for Jesus, it's not just like somehow that everybody would be equal, because in gospel terms, that, that's actually not something that's teased out a whole lot. It's that everybody gets an invitation because all people matter to God. It's that all people get an invitation. Do you see the, the difference there, the nuance of that? But, but it's really important that we begin to appreciate, appreciate that. Like Jesus can look at the disciples. In fact, I think Jesus picked the disciples not because they were the same, but because they were different. They all brought different things to the table. They all reflected different parts of like the story of what, of what kind of redemption God was going to do. Like as their story continues in the book of Acts, we see them approach the mission of the church and their own relationships with God through Jesus. We see them approach those very, very differently. They're not the same. But what Jesus did for each and every one of them that Jesus does for each and every one of us is he provides direct access. He gives a very specific personal invitation to each and every person. Why? Because all people matter to God. God is loving on all people, but not everybody and not us all the time are able to receive and respond to God's love. The best image uh, that I can come up with for that is that I, I have three children. I have three children. Do I love them equally? Do I love them equally? No. Do I love one more than the other? No. I don't love them the same because they're not all the same. Like, you know, my three kids need the love that I have that all comes from the same place in my heart. And I think they're all getting kind of the same proportion of love. If I actually want to put that, I don't even know how you put proportions to love, but let's just go with that for just a minute. But, but appreciating the fact that actually the way that I need to love my three kids... Um, is actually very different. Why? Because they're very different. They're very different people and they understand and they hear and they experience love in some very different ways. So um, can I love them all equally? No. Can I, can I love them all the same? No. Can I all give them like, like a similar access 
like a similar inclusion, a similar like invitation into, into my love and what I pray, the kind of difference that my love and their, my, and their life might actually look like and, and the kind of impact that it might make? Absolutely. Like, like this woman, is almost like she's teaching us something and kind of redefining. And, it, and it's almost like Jesus knows that something of what she's offering here in her persistence, some of what she's offering here in her desperation, some of what she's offering here is exactly what each and every one of us need, right? Um, we're going to do that in a different way because we're different people, but, but we need more of what's inside of her. The persistence the expectation of the miracle and this brilliant encounter where she says, Jesus, I, I probably am not even worthy. I'm not even worthy of the bread that you're giving Israel. And I'm not even asking for that. Jesus, this much grace will turn my world upside down. This much grace. Does that sound like a Savior who talks about the faith the size of a mustard seed can change everything? Does that sound like a Savior who would, who would um, like climb up on the cross to offer and invite all to know something about God's abundant and eternal life and love? Not in a way that dumbs it down or reduces it or just kind of acts like God is like able to just see everybody in exactly the same way, but to know that God actually created us all reflecting something of the perfect, beautiful, and good image of God, and yet all reflecting that in different ways, and that we would somehow be able to use that difference mixed with crumbs of grace that will move mountains and change lives and ultimately change the world. How many of us, friends, have um, thought about the difference that a crumb can make? How many of us have thought about the impact that a crumb of grace? I know we're often praying for this, and it's often that we get this, but even this much, even this much moves mountains. Now, as I, as I think about that, I'm, I'm also thinking, last point of the sermon, I'm also thinking about what Jesus seems to really be doing, is, is what Jesus also seems to really be doing here, is that, that if we go back to that map for just a second, then we'll go to that video. Um, the map, thank you, SALT team. So, like, this notion of the fact that this woman is an outsider, right? She's an outsider based on her gender. She's an outsider based on where she's from. Jesus knows something about that, right? Because he's from Galilee, not from Jerusalem. So, like, we can appreciate what this notion actually looks like. And so, like, she's an outsider, but, but also we have the privilege of appreciating the fact that there's some, like, some racial, ethnic, and even religious kind of hatred between, like, groups of people, Jews and, and other folks that are, like, living where this woman is from. And, and if we can appreciate the fact that Jesus also seems to be making a statement that what if... What if, what if that hate were in the past? What if that hate were in the past? What, what, if, what if that was something that was, but it doesn't have to be? What, what if? 
Um, I ran across this, um, this uh, clip. Uh, Christine Kane, amazing preacher of the gospel, one of the passion speakers every year for um, a huge gathering of young adults that gather uh, in Atlanta, Georgia. Um, and, and I just, I love what she does here. And I, I just want to play this video and just comment on it briefly. And then we'll, we'll pray and move on. The 170 the women that are either mentioned by name or alluded to in scripture. But there is only one woman that Jesus ever tells us to remember. In the midst of a discourse about the end times, Jesus said, remember Lot's wife. The only thing we know about Lot's wife in Genesis 19, 26, but Lot's wife looked back and became a pillar of salt. The angel of the Lord said, don't look back at what's burning down. Don't look back at what I am finished with. Don't look back at the thing I am delivering you from. Don't look back at that thing. Look forward to the future, it says. But Lot's wife looked back and she became a pillar of salt. She got calcified and stuck in a place that she was only meant to be passing through. And our world has shifted and a shaking has happened and things as we've known it are burning to the ground. And that word look back in, in the original language, it's look back with longing and a desire to go back. Her attachment to the past was greater than her commitment to the future. She wanted what she was leaving more than what God had for her in the future. We are so busy looking back and longing for the old. Oh, wow. Does that word preach? No, she's from New Zealand and you can't have her as your lead pastor. I'm sorry. No. <laughs> but, but man, like I, I want to, like if you heard the rest of that sermon, you would know that what she's, what she is not saying is don't ever pay attention to your past. You know, we all know that the easiest way to, to replicate the worst parts of our past is to never pay attention to it. She's not talking about that at all. She's talking about where are you living, friends? Where are we living? And Jesus is encouraging the disciples to live in the moment where God's grace is of, of abundant and available and even available to a woman that they think lives completely outside of it. And, and yet the affirmation of what it means for us to appreciate the fact that we're not called to live in yesterday because we can't. We're not called to live in tomorrow because it's not promised to us yet. We're invited to live in today, to live grace today, to like receive the gift of blessing today. The opportunities of this moment are available to us, friends. And we can like spend all of our time kind of stuck where we've been, or we can spend all of our time kind of praying about where we hope to be. But the reality is where we are, there is remarkable abundance. Amen to that? Remarkable abundance. And, and part of what this particular woman reminds me of um, is that even a crumb from the master's table can change the world. Um, I don't want her to just believe that. I want us to know that in the very fiber of our being. In the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Can we pray together? God of grace and God of glory, we give you thanks for the ways that you um, are inviting us into, um, into your grace into a right relationship with you, into an opportunity, oh God, to, um, to lay down things that have been, that haven't been our best and to be able to then have room to pick up, oh God, the best of your grace and what you're providing for us in this moment. And so, oh God, we um, pray that you would help us to do that. We know that uh, like even in this story, there's flirtations with generations and millennia, like thousands and thousands of years of, of hate and distrust and challenge and frustration. And yes, oh God, we uh, own and acknowledge all of that. And yet, 
And yet, oh God, somehow this woman teaches us that, that even a crumb from the master's table can change everything. And so, oh God, we are longing for the gift of your grace that um, will turn our church inside out, turns our, our world inside out, our community inside out, and allows, oh God, folks to see your grace like fall like a waterfall. And so, oh God, that's what we long for and hope for and want to work towards. It's the strong and precious name of Christ that we pray and all God's people said, amen. Thanks for joining the Long's Chapel Message Podcast. If you connected in any way with us via this podcast, we invite you to connect further by either leaving a rating and review down below or contacting us via our church website at longschapel.com. Here at Long's Chapel, we believe in worshiping and serving God by reaching people and growing together as passionate followers of Jesus Christ because all people matter to God. See you next week.